This is Fresh Air. I'm Terry Gross. My guest is Richard Thompson, who's been a guest several times on our show because his music is so great. He stands out for the originality and the darkness of his songwriting, singing, and guitar playing. He's been an influence on many performers, and his songs have been covered by people like Robert Plant, Elvis Costello, and R.E.M. In 1967, he co-founded the British group Fairport Convention, which created a new genre, a hybrid of traditional folk music of the British Isles and rock. The group performed traditional songs and originals, and many of those originals were written by Thompson. Sandy Denny was the lead singer. Thompson had no faith in his own voice as a singer and only started singing on stage after leaving the band in 1971 and going solo. In 73, he formed a group with his girlfriend, then wife, Linda Thompson. They sang duets, sometimes with Linda, sometimes with Richard singing lead. Their last album together was in 1982. Then the band and the marriage split up. It's hard for me to imagine a time when he wasn't a singer because his voice is so sure and strong and able to express the emotions in the surprising, dark, melodic, and lyrical turns of his songs. Thompson's memoir, Bee's Wing, Losing My Way and Finding My Voice, 1967 to 1975, has just been published in paperback. It focuses on his early years as a performer with Fairport and with Linda Thompson. It's also about his childhood and teenage years. The title, Bee's Wing, comes from the title of one of his songs. We'll be talking about his formative years, but I want to start with a more recent album from 2018. The album is called Thirteen Rivers. The song is called The Storm Won't Come. I'm looking for a storm to blow through town and blow these sad old buildings down fire to burn what fire may and rain to wash Richard Thompson, welcome back to Fresh Air. It's always such a treat to have you on the show. I love your music so much. Thank you. Thank you so much. You have such a dark sensibility, and I'm thinking about how so much of pop music over the decades, particularly in the pre-Dylan era, were about love and romance and, you know, more chaste sex because you weren't allowed to use sexual, (laughs) sexually explicit words in the earlier days of pop. But so many traditional ballads, like the ballads of the British Isles that you, you know, started singing are about love and murder and revenge and death and storms at sea and hangings. And yeah, happy stuff. Happy stuff. Is that part of what you loved about those old ballads? 
Well, I think it is. Um, I don't know why we are so attracted to that stuff. It's, it's great storytelling. Um, the, the old Scottish and Irish ballads and English ballads um, are just wonderful storytelling. And if you grow up on a diet of that, you think that's normal. And uh, when people say, oh, your music's so dark, you know, you've got such a dark sensibility, um, you know, I, I just say, well, I don't know what you mean. I mean, to me, it's just normal. And I'm happy that people think my music is at least serious, that it's not frivolous pop music, that it actually shares uh, some of the characteristics of poetry or of, of good prose. You know, you're going to the same places. Um, you're just expressing it in a more musical way. Your father was from Scotland, and your grandmother, and I don't know if it was your maternal or paternal grandmother, sang a lot, too, in Gaelic sometimes. Can you talk a little bit about the songs you learned just from hearing them sing and what their style of singing was like? And and if you were willing to sing a few bars of one of those songs that you grew up with? Oh. <laughs> uh, yes, my dad's mother um, was from the Isle of Skye. And uh, she, you know, she, she wasn't a great singer, but, but she'd sing around the house. And, and I don't think I could sing you something she sang because it was in Gaelic and I don't really have, have the Gaelic. Um, she sang a great song called Alan the Brown, um, I guess the brown haired. Um, it's a love song. It's a beautiful tune, um, and it's usually sung unaccompanied. Uh, and she'd just, you know, be singing it around the house when, when she's doing the dusting, you know. Um, I probably learned more um, from friends and from hanging out in folk clubs than I really did from family. I wasn't really part of one of those strong family traditions like the Watersons, you know, or or, or the McGarrigals. You, you know, you're right that school was like prison for you, and the only thing that you were interested in was music, playing guitar. And before the British invasion, teenagers in England were in love with American rock and roll and blues and that's, that's what influenced the Beatles and the Rolling Stones and Eric Clapton and countless others. You ended up going your own way and finding, like, your roots not in American roots but in traditional music of the British Isles. But what styles did you try? What kinds of music did you play before finding that you wanted to go your own way? Well, growing up in London, um, we had access to all kinds of music uh, because everything came through London. Uh, so you could go and hear jazz, you could hear classical music, you could hear good R&B, you could hear good blues um, for, from the British um, contingent and also for, from um, you know visiting American musicians uh, who, uh, who would generally um, come through London. But people like you know, Howlin' Wolf and, and uh, Sonny Boy Williamson would all, all kind of come through. And I, I just learned to play everything that, that I could copy. So I, I could pl play the blues reasonably well. Um, I could play classical guitar. Um, I, I could play country, which was very unfashionable at the time. Um, so pretty much everything, really. Um, and also, you know, I had a kind of short career as a session musician where, where I'm playing everything, uh, where you just uh, respond to whatever the session is and whoever the artist is, um, which is kind of fun, but you can get burned out on that as well after a while. You know, you're right. It didn't seem indulgent at that time. And you're talking about the 60s uh, for me to play a guitar solo for 10 minutes. In fact, it was expected. Half an hour wouldn't have been exceptional, as audiences were increasingly stoned and hearing things from an altered perspective. We, on the other hand, were relatively sober. Um, what was it like in those days, playing those really super long guitar solos? Did you feel at the time 
that it was self-indulgent? It didn't feel self-indulgent because uh, everyone else was really doing the same thing. So uh, if we were opening for Pink Floyd, I think it would almost be expected that there would be long instrumental passages um, where you could uh, indulge yourself, really. Um, and, and I did. I mean, I, I never felt I was drawing anything out. I, I, I like to feel that there was content to what I was doing. But, and then Pink Floyd would go on and you think, well, you know... Um, how much content have they got? <laughs> so uh, it was. It was all. Um, <clears throat> it, it was. It was kind of a self-indulgent, you know, very stoned kind of a musical scene. Um, and you know the you know the the light shows and and the you know the the the, the very loud sound uh, was all part of the, the sort of disorientating effect um, of the event, really. What was behind the founding of Fairport Convention, and what made you think that you wanted to, and that the band should? explore the music of, you know, the traditional British ballads? I think we started out as, as a bunch of friends. Uh, myself and Ashley and Simon were three like-minded, you know, North London teenagers, um, fairly determined to not be like other bands. Um, I think we thought there was a glut of blues bands, R&B bands, soul bands. Um, so we always tried to find uh, obscurities. If we were going to do a blues song, like we'd try and find something that no one else had ever heard of. And, uh, if, if, and we would do country songs, which no one else did at that time. And, and we, we do um, singer-songwriter stuff. Uh, we were very early in finding uh, Joni Mitchell demos before she had recorded. I think we were the first people to get the basement tapes, uh, the Dylan basement tapes. Uh, we were doing very early songs by Leonard Cohen. Um, so, you know, we were being obscure. Before we be, really became writers, we were trying to have uh, the most... Um, uh, obscure, different material from anybody else, and uh, I think I think our love of of lyrics made us stand out from other bands more than anything else. Uh, we really liked um, great lyrics, so we do folk songs. We we do um, you know Johnny Mitchell, etc. Um, I don't think anyone else was really doing that at the time. The first song that was a traditional song that Fairport did was "She Moves Through the Fair," and of course Sandy Denny was the lead singer. Why was this the song that was chosen to be the first actual traditional song that the band did? Well, when Sandy joined the band, we didn't have a lot of rehearsal time. We were playing shows all the time, and so we had to to get Sandy into the band, to integrate Sandy into the band as quickly as possible. So as she slowly learned our repertoire, we decided that we should learn some of her repertoire that she was singing in the folk clubs. And it was easy to kind of wrap ourselves around her arrangement of She Moved Through the Fair, uh, Nottingham Town, a couple of other, other songs uh, that she'd been performing. So that was a fairly easy rehearsal process. And, and for us, it was a nice way to, uh, to start playing some British Isles music. Well, why don't we hear that recording? And uh, this is uh, Sandy Denny with Fairport Convention, She Moved Through the Fair.
That was an early Fairport Convention song with my guest Richard Thompson on guitar. He has a memoir called Bee's Wing that's just been published in paperback. Um, when you started becoming deeply involved with, you know, musically with traditional music, did you do a lot of research looking for old ballads that, you know, that struck you as, as music you and, and Fairport should be performing? We did a lot of research, um, and uh, for, for for our first forays in, into traditional rock, or if everyone wants to, want to call it, um, we did look at, at some of the older ballads, particularly Scottish ballads, um, that, that, that had powerful lyrics. Uh, Something like Matty Groves, which is um, a murder ballad. Uh, we, we thought, well, if, if you sing these lyrics over the power of an electric band, that's going to be an incredible combination of things. Uh, Tam Lim, which is a very, a very supernatural song. Again, it's a story that kind of grabs you. Uh, and if you put it with this powerful backing, um, that, that's going to be something, something really quite fantastic. So we were looking for things that would work. Um, and I, I, you know, I, think, I think we found some, some folk songs were too pastoral, were too bucolic uh, to fit in, into that framework. But um, sometimes with the older songs, you might have a song that's four or five hundred years old. Uh, there are many versions, and sometimes you want to grab the best bits uh, from all those versions. Um, and some traditionalists would sneer at that approach, but, but for us, um, we really wanted to get you know, the best, the most honed-down um, version of a song um, that, that carried the most power and, and had the least dead wood in it. Um, the, the story would keep keep progressing and keep rolling. So, um, yes, the only answer is yes, lots of research. Is there a song that you found through this research that you're still particularly fond of? I mean, I love a song like um, Willow Day, uh, which is um, also known as Adieu, Adieu, which, which is uh, it's like a high women's um, song. Um, and it's just such a perfect, beautiful um, song. It's got a great tune, has wonderful uh, lyrics, uh, very colorful lyrics. Um, and I, I'm extremely fond of it. I was never involved in Fairport's recording of that song. I left the band by then, but uh, I sing it occasionally. I'll sing it live occasionally, uh, just because it's a wonderful place to go. And, and uh, when you sing those old songs, you feel this reverberation of history. You feel all the singers who sung that song down through the years. Would you mind singing a few bars of it? <laughs> okay, uh, yeah, I'll, well, I'll start anyway. Adieu, adieu, hard was my fate. I was brought up in a tender state. Bad company, it did me entice. I left off work and took bad advice, which makes me now to lament and say, Pity the fates of young felons all, oh, Willow Day, Willow Day. Uh, yeah. Um, our listeners may be hearing birds in the background. <laughs> Do you want to explain to us where you are? Oh, yes, I'm in a car park uh, because um, my house was too noisy, so, so I, I'm, uh, I'm just watching uh, some robins um, getting frisky at, at sort of mating season, um, and uh, very charming. <laughs> you write that it was hard to keep the sound of unaccompanied singing, the kind of singing that was often done with traditional songs, and the ambiguity of key and the lack of resolution in the melody 
once you put instruments behind it, can can you elaborate on that? And maybe if if you could sing perhaps an example of the ambiguity of key and the lack of resolution in the melody that you refer to. Hmm. Okay. Um, you know, it's tempting uh, when you grow up in a sort of Western music uh, to, to to put anything that's from outside of it uh, into the basic Western chord structure, you know, like CFG or something, will, will fit an awful lot of traditional songs if you if you let them. But but in traditional music, um, it, sometimes it is hard to know what the key is. Um, she moves with the fair, and my young love said to me, my parents won't mind, and my father won't slight you for your lack of kind. And she laid her hand on me, and this she did say, it will not be long, love, till our wedding day. Now, you could, you could sing that over the root note, or you could, you could sing it over a fourth above or a fifth above. Um, and sometimes you don't want to pin that down. Uh, you want to keep that ambiguity. And um, a great traditional interpreter, someone like Martin Carthy, will use special guitar tunings uh, in order to keep that ambiguity alive uh, and to, to not nail it down uh, into sort of C, F, and G so it sounds like, um, you know, a, a Western tradition popular song. And, and it's not always easy to do that, but it's, it's a very desirable thing, I think, to, to keep that an ambiguity going. So how did you deal with it as a guitarist? As a guitarist, um... I learned from people like Martin Carthy and Davy Graham, uh, some of the great acoustic um, guitar players in Britain. And uh, as a band, we, we tried to arrange things in that way. And um, we did a song uh, maybe a year a year later than that called A Sailor's Life, where uh, it's basically built, built around a drone. Uh, so, so you have a drone and melody and not an awful lot of uh, saying what the chord is. And uh, just drone and melody is a very old tradition. Um, a lot of uh, pipe music, um, bagpipe music um, from all around the world. Uh, it's basically drone and melody. So it's a very ancient thing. Um, and, and you don't have to develop that into a chord structure necessarily. Yet you, can, you can keep that um, ambiguity going. So in Fairport, um, eventually we really tried to do a lot more of that. Let's hear the song you were just talking about. This is Fairport Convention. Fairport Convention with my guest Richard Thompson on guitar. Let's take a short break here, and then we'll talk some more. If you're just joining us, uh, my guest is Richard Thompson, and his new memoir is called Bee's Wing, which is also the title of one of his songs. We'll be right back. I'm Terry Gross, and this is Fresh Air.
This is Fresh Air. I'm Terry Gross. Let's get back to my interview with songwriter, singer, and guitarist Richard Thompson. His memoir, Bee's Wing, Losing My Way and Finding My Voice, 1967 to 1975, has just been published in paperback. In the late 60s, he co-founded the British group Fairport Convention, which created a new genre, a hybrid of traditional folk music of the British Isles and rock. The group performed traditional songs and originals. Many of those originals were written by Thompson. He left the group, went as a duo with his girlfriend and wife, Linda Thompson, and then after about 10 years of recording together, um, they broke up musically and as a married couple, and he's been solo ever since. You write in your memoir about what it was like when Jimi Hendrix came to London. How did you feel his impact? I went to see him fairly early on, probably early 1967, uh, at a little little club uh, that held about 300 people. And um, he was something clearly different. You know, he'd taken ideas from people like The Who, some of Pete Townsend's, you know, um, pyrotechnics. And he wedded that with, uh, you know, really good blues guitar playing and lots of uh, feedback and a touch of psychedelia here and there and it was clearly something very impressive and very different and something that that took it up a level as well and I think uh, when the other London-based guitar players Peter Green and Eric Clapton and everybody heard uh, Jimmy um, they really kind of scratched their heads and and, um, felt a bit um, second-hand in a sense you know Jimmy seemed to be much more um, real and much more connected to the music he was playing. Uh, and all these British guitar players had really learned from, from records. And they didn't live in Chicago, they didn't live in Mississippi. Um, so I think it was owning up time in many ways. Uh, and, and for me, I, I just thought, well, I have to do something different. I, I can't be a blues-based guitar player. Uh, I have to be something else. So I really tried to develop an individual style. So when you're playing this like new kind of music, combining you know traditional music and rock, was it hard to find an audience? Um, the audience were really there um, for us, and uh, you, you know I think we we only really started playing that music 100 um, percent after we we had a, a traffic accident that killed our drummer, and uh, well, we had great sympathy for, from our audience. And uh, our, our first show was at the Festival Hall in London. And it was sold out. It was a great success. People loved it. Uh, and you know, we had, you had this phenomenon of um, playing uh, in among the, 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 these great songs, these wonderful ballads, uh, playing um, traditional dance music, playing jigs and reels, very loud and very fast. Uh, and uh, the audience just were bowled over by this, this concept. Um, and uh, we had great audiences, really, from that point onwards. Uh, there wasn't ever um, a doubt. I think when we came to America, we found it a little bit harder. The audiences were a little more resistant to what we were doing and didn't really understand what we were doing. Let, let's talk about that car crash. This was in 1969. And you and the band and your girlfriend at the time, Jeannie, were in the car. And the person driving was like your manager, your road manager? Road manager, yeah. And you just played a club in Birmingham. You were driving home. And um, you want to describe what happened? Is that too much to ask? I know it's very traumatic, so... Uh... 
It's okay, yeah, I, I can answer that. So uh, we're driving back to London, we're almost at London, and our driver falls asleep, uh, and the van, you know, veers off the road. Um, but, but you knew that, you knew he was falling asleep. You tried to grab the wheel. You did grab the wheel to avert crashing into a pole, and you didn't crash into the pole, but the car, you know, spiraled into a tunnel instead. Um, well, it, it, it kind of spiraled. I mean, it was not literally into a tunnel, but it spiraled and, and, and rolled. Um, and, uh, you know, we ended up off the road and, and down an embankment. Um, uh, there were injuries. Um, my, my girlfriend was killed. Our drummer was killed. And that was a real watershed for the band. Um, uh, as we recovered from that, um, the, the, the three of us anyway, I, I myself and Ashley and Simon and, and Sandy as well, we really uh, had to have a meeting and say, what are we going to do? Are we going to continue as a band? Uh, is it worth it? You know, this is too big a price to pay for, for the joy of playing music live. Um, and eventually we decided, well, we should carry on, if only for the sake of Martin and Jeannie. Uh, um, I, th I think we owe it to them uh, to, to keep the spirit alive and... and uh, and keep ourselves sane as well, really, I think. We had to have a project, I think, to, to keep our, to hold ourselves together. What was the project? Well, the project was really to do the Legion Leaf album, uh, which was the next album. Um, and this was an all-traditional uh, record. Uh, I think well, there were a couple of original songs, but it, it was supposed to be um, a statement, really. Um, th this is you know, how you play British music uh, in the 20th century. Uh, i.e. With, with bass and drums. Um, so that, that, that was the project that, that we, we put all our energy into uh, and a lot of research into. And it kept us going through that summer. And, um, you know, I mean, I think it did, it did keep us sane to some extent anyway. Um, but it was difficult. You know, the, the, there wasn't a lot of therapy in those days. There wasn't a lot of counselling. Um, uh, there wasn't a lot of thought of, of you know, of trauma. And uh, I think we were just supposed to, to get on with it, really, uh, to get on with life. But I think we were deeply scarred, actually. Um, and it took us a couple of years to truly recover from, from that accident. Um, and I think some of the decisions that we made in the next uh, couple of years um, w w were not good. It was, it was a tough time, tough time. So the album that you mentioned, Legion Leaf, had a lot of traditional songs, but a couple of originals. I want to play an original that you wrote that's on that album, Crazy Man Michael. Can you say something about the song before we hear it? I think the, the song's metaphorical. It, it's, it's almost like a magical world, like, like a parallel universe, a dream world, um, and not, not far removed from the, the world of traditional music and, and the kind of themes, the supernatural themes that you find in traditional music. And I'm not sure I knew what I was doing when I was writing it, but clearly it's a reflection on, on the accident and on the loss of, of those wonderful people. Well, let's hear it. This is Fairport Convention with Sandy Denny singing lead.
That's Fairport Convention from their album Liege and Leaf. My guest is Richard Thompson, who was the guitarist and lead songwriter for the band. And then, of course, he sang with Linda Thompson after that and then went solo and has been solo for years. How long did the band stay together after the accident? Well, the band's still going. <laughs> but but Sandy Denny was asked to leave, and then and then you left. Yeah, um, I think we lasted just a few months after the accident, and then um, uh, you know Sandy left, or, or was asked asked to leave. It was a bit, bit ambiguous what, what was really the, the the driving force behind that. Um, Ashley left as well, um, and then I left about a year later. Um, I, I think uh, I, I think there were, there was some uh, trauma, traumatic reasons uh, that the, the band split up in that way. I, I think if we'd been thinking a bit more clearly, we would have stayed together longer um, with a more uh, stable lineup. Um, the band went through a lot of personal changes over the years. I mean, they are still going, which is fantastic, with at least uh, two or three original members. And, and they're still a great band, but um, th- there have been a lot of changes, um, and uh, I'm not sure it was always logical. A few years later, Sandy Denny died. She fell down, I think she fell down a flight of stairs, and it seemed to be ambiguous whether it was death by suicide or, or an accident. You, you think it was an accident? I do think it was an accident. Um, I don't think she was uh, someone who would ever contemplate suicide, but but she she became really unreliable. Um, She had a young baby. Uh, She was very irresponsible. Um, And uh, in some ways, I think life was was getting to be too much for her. And uh, she'd fallen down the stairs before, so she had a previous uh, brain trauma, we believe. And I think uh, when she fell down the stairs again and hit her head again, I, th- I think that that, that was really, um, uh, it became much more serious and uh, she didn't really recover from that. But I don't think she was suicidal. You know, we talked about how much death there is in traditional British folk music and um, how, you know, you you perform so many of the songs and so many of your own songs are are modeled on that. And I'm thinking about how there was, you know, death in your life at an at an early age from the car accident and then Sandy Denny, you know, dying. So like you knew the death of peers through, you know, surprising and awful twists in their lives. Well, it, I think that does something to you. Um you know, people lose um, parents young sometimes. Um, you know, people get orphaned or, or um, they, they lose their parents through illness or, or something uh, or war. And uh, I think it makes you grow up quicker. You know, you, 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 life becomes more serious. Um, and you see life, I think, also as a more precious thing. And you realize that, that time isn't this infinite thing, that, that, that time runs out. And uh, you better enjoy life and live life at the time and really, really savor it. I think it gives you that quality. Let me reintroduce you. My guest is songwriter, singer, and guitarist Richard Thompson. He has a memoir called Bee's Wing, Losing My Way and Finding My Voice, 1967 to 75. We'll be right back. This is Fresh Air. This is Fresh Air. Let's get back to my interview with Richard Thompson. His memoir, Bee's Wing, Losing My Way and Finding My Voice, 1967 to 1975, has just been published in paperback. 
After leaving Fairport and playing with a lot of other bands, you and your girlfriend and wife, Linda Thompson, formed a group. And you did remarkable music together. How do you think performing with her changed you as a songwriter? Because you were writing songs for yourself and writing songs for her. Yeah, um, interesting. Um, I, I think... Uh well, it had to make me empathetic to to someone else's point of view, and um, particularly to write songs from a female perspective uh, is very difficult. And I'm not sure I ever really did that successfully. But at least I could write songs that were at least ambiguous. That if I sang it, it sounded authentic, or if Linda sang it, it sounded authentic. I, I could never claim to, to get right in, inside her head to to, to to write stuff in that way. But um, there were many songs that we tried out where. She might start out singing it and then say, "Well, you know, I, I don't really feel this. You know, why don't you sing it?" So there was a bit of that back and forth kind of idea. Um, but I, th- I think it, it, it loosened me up as a songwriter and it made me a bit more um, sympathetic. Um, and I think you know, I admired someone like Robbie Robertson of the band who was writing songs for other voices, not for his own voice. And so he'd be writing a song thinking, well, Levon's going to sing this one, you know, or Rick, Rick Danko's going to sing this one. Um, so I think I was influenced by that attitude. Um, that really helped me. So I want to play a song that she sings lead on and you sing on, on the chorus. And this is Walking on a Wire. And um, it's from the album Shoot Out the Lights, which was your last album together in 1982. Can you talk about writing this song? Uh, yeah, it's a song um, about relationships, you know, but being right on the edge, really, or, you know, or up, up on a high wire, and you can fall off at any any moment. Uh, you know, some people say, not me necessarily, but some people say uh, this was, you know, a kind of a, a precursor of our marriage breaking down. You know, it was kind of kind of prophetic that, um, you know, we weren't going to be together much longer. I mean, I really don't know about that. Um, Certainly by the time the album came out, um, we were um, uh, pretty much split up. And uh, so a lot of people have read into into that album. It's, it's, you know, one of the the breakup albums. And I'm not sure I go that far, uh, really. Um, And to me, I was just writing songs. I didn't really know what I was doing in that sense. Um, I wasn't deliberately writing um, with with a divorce in mind or anything. Um, But perhaps I was subconsciously picking up on on the news and uh, the songs just pop out. The songs just seem to pop out anyway. They they seem to have a life of their own. And you write them and you look at them later and you think, oh, okay, maybe that was uh, about that or about this. but I think at the time, you're not really conscious, necessarily. Well, well, let's hear it. So this is Linda Thompson singing lead with Richard Thompson also on vocals. And this is from their album together, Shoot Out the Lights, recorded in 1982. I hand you my ball and chain You just hand me that same old refrain I'm walking on a wire I'm walking on a wire And I'm falling I wish I could please you tonight 
walking on a wire I'm walking on a wire And I'm falling Too many steps That was Richard and Linda Thompson from their album Shoot Out the Lights from 1982. You know, we talked about how you didn't really sing during the Fairport Convention years, and you shared vocals with Linda Thompson when you, you were in a duo with her. Um, what was it like for you when you first tried to figure out if you could sing on stage, if you were good enough? I love your voice so much, and it's so distinctive. I mean, I never confuse your voice with anybody else's. Um, and I don't know, your singing just kind of speaks to me, um, but you'd never thought of yourself as a singer. So how did you figure out who you were as a singer and what qualities of your voice um, that you liked and were comfortable with? Uh, I think it was a very slow process. Um, in, in fact, I used to sing harmony. I, I'd sing behind Sandy or something. But when you have someone who's that strong and that in tune as a singer, uh, it's very easy to just to, to, to jump in and, and sing a harmony underneath. Um, when Sandy left the band, you know, we kind of shared vocals. No one was really uh, confident enough to be, you know, the lead singer. Um, and then when I, when I started uh, working with Linda, um, uh, you know, I felt a little bit more confident. And um, playing in folk clubs was was a very good way of making your voice stronger and getting, you know, becoming more confident as a singer. Because um, in a folk club, there's nowhere to hide. You, you really have to just get on with it. You, you have to be, you know, whoever you're going to be uh, and sing however you're going to sing. And um, they'll accept it or not, you know. But there's no hiding behind, you know, uh, microphones or reverbs or anything like that. So that was a good confidence booster as well. And then, um, really, when I was solo, um, I, I just thought, well, you know, I'll, you know, I'll do, I'll do the singing. Um, I love singing, um, but I didn't feel my voice was still quite there. Um, so it took me a few, a few solo albums to really feel that uh, I, was, I was getting in the right direction anyway. And I had producers who were not necessarily great vocal coaches. I had producers who were saying, oh, you must sing louder, you know, you, you, you must give it a bit more a bit more grit or something. Whereas my voice sounds better if it's not that loud, if it's a little bit underneath. Um, so it was a learning experience for me, a learning experience for my producers as well. Um, but I think I finally got there, and um, I think I sing okay now. <laughs> yeah. Just about. I, I, I would say. Let's take a short break here and then talk some more. If you're just joining us, my guest is songwriter, singer, and guitarist Richard Thompson. His new memoir is called Bee's Wing, Losing My Way and Finding My Voice, 1967-75. to 75. We'll be right back. This is Fresh Air. This is Fresh Air. Let's get back to my interview with songwriter, singer, and guitarist Richard Thompson. His new memoir is called Bee's Wing, Losing My Way and Finding My Voice, 1967 to 75. You've said, you know, that it's sometimes hard to tell where a song comes from. They just kind of come to you. When you write songs now, are they coming from a different place at all? Because you've lived through so much more than you did when you were young. And also you've written so many songs. I, I think it's hard for a lot of people to to not keep writing the same song. I think you have to be aware of, uh, of, of writing the same song over and over. On the other hand, um, if you write the same song over and over, you might finally get it right. <laughs> and and, and I, think, um, I think there's a lot of writing 
uh, with variations. Yeah, you're almost writing the same song, but but you manage to make it different enough that, that people won't notice too much. But you know what you're aiming for. You're, you're aiming to perfect that particular kind of song. And um, if you do, then you could tear up, you know, the, the ten versions before that. But uh, on the whole, I think you're trying to not repeat yourself uh, and that, that gets harder and harder of course um, not only not only because you're writing uh, more songs you've written 400 500 songs but but that everyone else is writing songs as well you know like in Nashville God knows how many songs they write a year you know just just in Nashville um, so um, there's always uh, the, this uh, this idea that, that you have to come up with something that's different and when you do come up with it with a song that, that is you think well no one's written this song before I know for certain this is something that no one has tackled before. It's a great feeling. It's a wonderful feeling, and um, and it's it's a rare thing, you know, because of, of, of how much we all love songs and how many songs get written and um, how many people want to express themselves. So, but uh, being original does get harder and harder. Do you think your songs now in your seventies are coming from a different place at all? And they did when you were younger. Oh, definitely, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think that they come from a certain maturity, um, for sure. Uh, they're not songs that you write when you're twenty. I don't think. On the other hand, um, you know, I love the energy of, of thinking that you're still twenty. You know, uh, fooling yourself that, that you're still young, uh, and you've got all this energy. And um, I think you, you can write good songs by fooling yourself. That's for sure. I want to close with the song "Bee's Wing." which is the title of your book as well as the title of the song. And it's it's one of your better-known songs. I think it's also the title of your music publishing company? Uh, yes, it is, yeah. Yeah. So what is it about this song that means so much to you that you've named the book and your publishing company by it? <laughs> um, the publishing company, um, I think I named it after... It's a small town in Scotland. It's called Beeswing. And there's always that, also a Scottish dance tune called Beeswing. So I think that's where the name came from originally. And then the song really came later. Um, we're still talking a long time ago, but the song came later. And I think the song um, title uh, became the book title because the song seems to me to um, encapsulate things about the 60s and 70s. Um, not everything about the 60s and 70s, but, but the way that uh, society changed at, at that point. Uh, and people people didn't uh, accept the, the values of their parents and they dropped out. They, they didn't go to university. They didn't go into the straight job. Um, you know, they, they went off around the world. Uh, in some cases, didn't come back. Uh, they took to alternative lifestyles, um, uh, and um, I think some of that is expressed in the in in the you know in the book, and certainly uh, in the song title. Richard Thompson, thank you so much for talking with us. It's it's always such a pleasure to have you on our show, and to have an opportunity to play a lot of your music. Oh well, it's a great pleasure. Thank you so much, Terry. When I came to town They called it the summer of love They were burning babies Burning flags The hawks against the doves I took a job in the steaming Down on Cardrum Street And I fell in love With a laundry girl Who was working next to me 
Well, she was a rare thing, fine as a bee's wing. So fine a breath of wind might blow her away. She was a lost child, well, she was running wild. She said, as long as there's no price on love, I'll stay. And you wouldn't want me any other way. That's Richard Thompson singing his song Bee's Wing, which is also the title of his memoir. It's just been published in paperback. Tomorrow on Fresh Air, we'll talk about Rupert Murdoch, his family, and the media empire he created, including Fox News. My guest will be New York Times reporter Jim Rutenberg. He co-wrote a series of investigative articles about how Murdoch's newspapers and TV networks helped create, amplify, and profit from the right-wing populist wave in the U.S. and other countries. The series has been adapted into a CNN Plus documentary series. I hope you'll join us. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our senior producer today is Sam Brigger. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham. Our interviews and reviews are produced and edited by Amy Stallett, Phyllis Myers, Roberto Shorrock, Lauren Krenzel, Heidi Simon, Teresa Madden, Anne-Marie Boldonado, Seth Kelly, and Joel Wolfram. Our digital media producer is Molly C.V. Nesper. Thea Chaloner directed today's show. I'm Terry Gross. <laughs>